From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you the Unconquered Podcast. As always, this podcast brought to you by EPR Creations, bringing the best of website development and internet marketing for an affordable price. Today, we're going to be taking a look back at the Wake Forest game specifically, and also just the, the first quarter of the Florida State season in general, and taking stock of some things. And and actually, in this episode, I'm going to go back on a few things that I, I said in the uh, in the numb, lukewarm, lukewarm takes on Saturday uh, after having gone back through the game more carefully and taking a, a closer look at some of the mistakes that were made and, and some other things. And also considering the coordinator's interviews earlier this week, I, I think that that uh, that there was, generally speaking, I don't think coordinator interviews tell you a whole lot because they just don't really say much. I mean, basically, it's a bunch of um, cliches usually and, and uh, talking around problems and all of that. But I thought the coordinators, what they said in, in this week's interviews w- was more revealing than what I thought those interviews would be. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's there. There was a, there were there were a lot of things in there that were worthy of of chewing on, and uh, and as bad as some of it sounded, there was a lot of read between the lines stuff in there. I mean, when they're saying, "Well, you know, we've got to do a better job of uh, of preparing for our personnel and you know putting our guys in better positions to do what they do," which is what I know, and that was a criticism that I had in the uh, in in the post game podcast. But the way that they were saying this, some of the things that they said, I mean, they were they were all but saying, look, we have our hands tied because we're putting personnel out there that can't do what we're asking them to do. And we don't always know that until we get to the game. And and there were definitely places in, in those interviews that were really sort of revealing if you know know how to read between the lines. And actually, I, I thought um, the Nolcast guys, uh, Bud and Ingram, uh, they they teased out on social media a bunch of stuff on that this this week, and you know I don't get a chance to listen to a whole lot of other Florida State stuff, uh, but I went and took a listen, and I thought they did a great job of actually working through what was um, what was being said there in terms of between the lines. So you know if you haven't heard that, I know it's bad business to rec- to uh, recommend. Uh, quote unquote competitors, but you know, I, I'm not threatened by anything anybody else does. If somebody does something really well, I think you should, you should listen to that. And and that episode I think is well worth listening to, uh, and taking very seriously because I think what they basically their evaluation of what the coaches said was accurate. Uh, that basically they're trying to talk around the limitations that they have personnel wise, and also some of the problems that they're having and being able to assess anything in practice based on, a variety of problems that they've had in terms of availability and also quality of competition within practice that have tied their hands. And, you know, listening to those coordinator interviews, I, I can actually relate a lot to what those guys said, because I've been in some of those situations and I'll uh, address that as we, as we go on. But all that said, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to talk through both sides of the ball a little bit and, and some of the things that have, um, that as I went back and, and took a closer look have, have stood out. So uh, offensively, I'm going to start on the offensive side and the offensive side is brought to you by Lewis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida. If you want somebody who's going to go on offense for you in terms of making sure that your property gets sold 
for the highest possible price in the shortest amount of time, Lewis is the guy to go to for any sort of real estate uh, transactions in the greater Jacksonville area. Let him know you heard about him from the Unconquered podcast. Offensively, there were a few things that on the second and you know third and fourth analyses here uh, really came up that were telling. Uh, first of all, I, I I should I should state just up front, I'm a lot less frustrated by how the game was called on both sides of the ball in terms of uh, what the coordinators chose to do. I think that that there were a few mistakes that they would there were a handful of calls that I think either either coordinator would like to have back. But I thought overall, when I went back and I looked at this, it was like, you know, actually situationally, I've got no problem with that call. But man, the execution on this or that was not good enough. And oftentimes in each, on each side of the ball, it was one player or two players rather than a bigger systemic problem. And then the problem is that in certain cases, especially on defense, it wasn't always the same player. I mean, it's easy. It's much easier as a coach when you have one player who's constantly getting, getting beat and, you know, hopefully you can sub that out and, and fix your problems. It's not quite that simple. They've got some personnel issues and, and all of that defensively and offensively, you know, it's the same kind of thing where you had different players limitations really coming in at different points. But, uh, but yeah, I, I thought by and large that that was a better called game than, than I, than I thought coming out of it. And I tend to be a person who blames play calling less than most fans, partly because I know as a, as someone who's coached, uh, who's called plays on the sideline, um, that, Play calling matters less than most people think it does. It's not it's not tech mobile where it's a matter of whether you pick the the right play versus the opponent's pick. Uh, a lot more goes into everything, and execution is really where where games are won. And yeah, execution. You know, you say, oh well, then that means you're blaming players, not coaches. That's not exactly right because coaches are responsible for getting players to execute. Now, granted, it's a lot easier to get players to execute if you have Alabama level talent. But you still have to get that to you have to develop those guys and get them to execute, and that's that's part of the part of the issue here. So, yeah, that's just the the first sort of general thing is that in terms of in game decisions and play calling and that sort of thing, I'm I don't have nearly I'm I'm much less frustrated than I was after watching the game. Uh, I think most of the situational problems that they had were the result of just players making players technique breaking down, making bad decisions, doing stupid things. And in, uh, and in some cases just getting physically beat. And that's, you know, those are not in game coaching problems. Those are things that, yeah, you know, they're coaching problems to some degree in terms of in practice and preparation and all of that. But you're going to expect that at this point. I mean, you've got guys that are, that have been coached by four different coordinators on each side of the ball. So, I mean, it's just, it's not an ideal situation. You got guys that are still learning how to do what they're supposed to be doing. So that's just a more general thing. But again, offensively, if we want to focus more on some of these things, I, th I think it's worth noting that, that looking at the raw stats and you say, okay, well, Ward averaged, you know, too many yards per carry not to get the ball more. Um, uh, and same with Corbin and, and, you know, basically you need to feed those backs, et cetera. But the problem is when you go back and you look more closely at the game, 
the majority of those rushing yards came in the second half as they were basically able to adjust to what they figured out their personnel could actually do against Wake, which turns out not to have been much. And, you know, from a coaching perspective, from an in-game perspective, I think that's actually a good sign, not a bad one. Uh, they didn't abandon the run in this game. It's that early in the game, they couldn't find rhythm because they couldn't block them. And then what they did is they made adjustments in the second half to get some miskeyed tosses and other sort of funky runs that were able to, to manufacture r- rushing yards despite the fact that they were not getting anything between the tackles. So, you know, th- that that's not so much a, a play-calling complaint as it's just a recognition of the reality that they it took them a little bit to figure out what they could and couldn't do given the personnel that they had. And, and frankly, I, I think when I went back and looked at this, I, I'm convinced that the loss of Robert Scott at left tackle is ultimately what made this an uncompetitive game. And that goes back to the be, you know beginning of the year, the preseason podcast. We said, look, if Robert Scott goes down, this team's in serious trouble because he's the one guy they've got that can play left tackle. And man, was that the case in this game? I mean, Brady Scott really struggled in this game and several key plays in this game just boiled down to physically getting whipped at one offensive line position. You're trying to do something and that offensive lineman is just not holding, holding his own is not holding and holding the water enough to be able to, uh, to get, to get what you need, you know, whether that's on a fourth and two or on a third and three or, you know, a key pass that ends up getting intercepted because you've got a, a defensive lineman in, in in the quarterback's lap. There's a variety of different issues that that came up that typically just ran right through one offensive line, uh, one offensive lineman, and that's where you know I think this could be a an average, even potentially above average offensive line with the five starters with Maurice Smith at uh, at center. With with uh, with Robert Scott at left tackle, and then whoever you decide your two best guards at any time are, you know, you can kind of rotate Baby on Johnson in there, uh, and then Washington at right tackle. I think that can be a competent, even above average offensive line. But the moment you lose that left tackle who can play, you go from average, maybe even above average, to bad with a quickness, and that was very obvious in this game. When you go back and you look at this, they, they just weren't competitive up front. And it wasn't that they weren't competitive across the board. They they were getting beaten more often than not at one spot. And at a certain point, you know, you can try to help there, but that's a hard place to help. And trying to compensate around that when you don't have other pieces that you can lean on to to compensate for that is is tricky. So because, I mean... They're not good enough on the rest of the offensive line to make up for that that uh, that 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 deficit at one spot. So, I mean, if you're elite at the at the spot next to a guy that's getting beat, then maybe you can make up for that more. But if you're not, if you're just average to above average, then that one spot kills you. So, so yeah, and. Another thing that that I think is the case is, you know, and Dillingham mentioned that he has to be more creative working with what he has early in the game because, you know, he said, you know, they're they're trying to, they, they don't have an identity right now, and when uh, even when they start to get an get an identity or start to figure that out, now they have different personnel, and then they ha- they're having to reestablish a new identity. 
I, I heard that and I was like, oh man, I know what that feels like. Yeah. And, and the problem here is that they really just haven't had enough time going all the way back to beginning of camp with full personnel to establish what they can do. And that's what you, you know, as an identity, you establish, what is it that we can do? What, where, where are our strengths? Okay. We're going to build on our strengths. Well, if you haven't had your quarterback position and your offensive line, if you haven't had the full personnel for those spots at any point going all the way back to the beginning of camp, you haven't had time to really even figure out what you can and can't do with the groups that you're putting out there. It's like, well, you know, and once you get into the end of the week, you're not doing a whole lot of scrimmage. You're going against scout team. You don't have a chance to to evaluate like, okay, we can do this and we can't do this. So we're going to focus on this as our strength. You're coming in kind of blind and trying to adjust on the fly to say, oh, that didn't work because that guy actually can't do what we're asking him to do here. And that's where they're at. And like I said, I've been sort of in that situation. I mean, when, when Dillingham says he's having to figure out what his group can do on the fly personnel wise, I've been in that situation as a coach and it is not fun. At a high school level, it happens a little bit more often because, you know, I've coached at places where you've got basically, you know, 30 guys, 33 guys that that are basically playing, which is not enough depth to platoon. You can't, you don't, the, the guys that are your key players on defense are also your key players on offense. And so you never actually get a chance to do any real scrimmage or anything against more than air or effectively scout team or JV guys on, uh, or in our case, it was basically freshman guys. Uh, you don't get a chance to do anything against anybody who gives you anything but but uh, cursory resistance, and so you don't really figure out your guys don't don't get to compete. They don't get better from that, and you're just doing everything through drills. And then you get in games, and you have to figure out what these guys can actually do when they're going against you know other first team players, because in our case we had. Our first team wide receiver was also our first team corner. And, you know, one of my first team wide receivers was our first team linebacker. Uh, You know, another, uh, you know, our quarterback was our first team safety. You know, our uh, four of our four of our offensive linemen were our were our first team defensive line. So, I mean, you're just not getting a whole lot done there and you don't get a chance to, to see what you can do. And I get that. And then you get into games and then, you know, you're talking on the phones all game. Okay, we can't do that. You know, this guy, you know. It's just not working. This is because of this. Well, you can figure that out if you're used to getting that level of competition and you have your guys together during the preseason. If you can't do that, then games become essentially scrimmages where you get a chance to figure that out, those early season games in particular. And then if you get injuries, that that further complicates that. And that's where Florida State's been. And, and so that's one of the reasons why things have looked so disjointed. And you combine that then with something that I've said in the past that you can hide subpar quarterback play if you have a great offensive line and you can hide poor offensive line play if you're good at quarterback because quarterback gets it out quickly, gets it out to the proper read, gets it to guys in space and you can hide that offensive line. But if you're bad at both, you're just really bad because it's a force multiplier. A bad quarterback makes a ba- makes the offensive line look bad. And a bad offensive line makes a quarterback look bad. Although a really good quarterback can compensate for that. But a bad offensive line plus a bad quarterback means atrocious 
because you can't hide one with the other. You're, you're actually multiplying the, how bad each one is by the other one not being able to hide it. And so th- that's where Florida State's at right now. I mean, they've not gotten good quarterback play pretty much all year. I mean, had a little bit against Notre Dame that was okay. And they've not had good offensive line play since Robert Scott went down. So you're just going to be bad if you don't have, if you're not okay at, on a, at at least one of those spots. And, you know, Jordan Travis right now, he gives you more options at quarterback. I think that's clear than, you know, Milton, who's clearly not fully back. And again, if you go back to my, if you go to the Patreon breakdown that I gave at the beginning of the year, I, I was trying to explain to fans why, why even if Milton was 100%, they shouldn't expect him to go out and light the world on fire based on what he did at US at UCF because his numbers were great at UCF, but the actual film was not quite as good as the numbers. And so then you have, he's not as, he's just not as healthy as he's been obviously for good reason. And then you have, you know, that, that expectation has to be adjusted even further down. So, you know, you hope you get close to what he was at UCF and they haven't gotten even that. And he wasn't, to me, a top level player, even at UCF. So, you know, he's a good player, a very good player, but not a great player. And now, you know, I think he, he could be an above average to good player, but has to have a little help to be that Jordan Travis can give you more options, but he hasn't to my eye, he hasn't looked healthy all season. And now after Wake Forest, he is definitely not healthy. And he didn't help himself at all by there were case there were times where he could have gotten rid of the football or had to get rid of the football and just situationally made the wrong call and got himself hit. I mean, the the hit on the fourth down play or the third down play where they had the entire offensive line cut block and they're in that little compressed two by two formation. That ball's got to be out immediately when you're when your offensive line is cut blocking. That is designed to get the defender's hands down so that you can get the ball out immediately. And if you hold on to that ball, it's a sack, period. You can never hold on to that ball. If you if if nothing's open, your job is to throw the ball into the first row of the stands over the head of the of your outside receiver. But you have to get rid of that ball. And instead, he pulled it down and tried to run, and you can't do that when you've got all cut blocks. And that's when he got himself hit, and that's when he really hurt his shoulder. So again, that's just bad situational awareness, not doing what your coach to do there. But, you know, at the at any rate, I think. That's that's kind of the the majority of what I saw when I went back and I looked at it. It's like, yeah, here's here's the stuff that as a coach you're battling. And I, I more felt bad for this coaching staff in terms of what they're dealing with, the hand that they've been dealt with, than I did frustration for how they handled it. Because I thought actually what they did to adjust for it as the game went on was right. And then they just kept get, getting kicked in the teeth by some by some poor situational plays. I mean, you think about Mackenzie Milton fumbling on the uh, on the goal line. You're in a position to to actually close that game to make it competitive again, and then all of a sudden, you got to fumble in the end zone. I mean, that is that is devastating. And they had actually schemed up a really good drive there. So, I mean, this is just what what things are right now, and they they've got to get it cleaned up, and they've got to figure out what they can do with their personnel, but. Honestly, it's not going to get a whole lot better until a couple of the pieces that they have to have on the field are on the field. Now, I did find it interesting that, you know, Dillingham commented that that Wake Forest didn't do what they expected to see, that, you know, they 
they're a Mike Elko, basically Mike Elko tree defense, which so is Adam Fuller, uh, that they are basically running Elko's defense. And usually that the way that they do it has to do with a lot of soft, uh, you know, cover four and, you know, some cover three with uh, with some fire zone type things thrown in. And they went man free against Florida State, which was surprising to 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 the staff. And they did not expect to see that. And my first response to that was, well, first of all, welcome to Florida State. <laughs> You're going to see every team you play against for the rest of your career at Florida State. They're going to they're going to do things that you don't expect that you haven't seen on film simply because you're Florida State. And that's true even when you're bad because of the brand. It comes with the brand. It just is who you are. And so you got got to get used to that. And, and part of the game planning process has to be not just looking at what teams have done on film, but thinking about, okay, given what we have on our roster, given who we are, if I were going to break tendency or if I were going to bring something else into play to, to do something against us, this is what I would do. And you have to, you have to actually plan for some of those, those things that teams haven't really shown as much because that's just what's going to happen. You know, it happened to Clemson last week with Georgia tech and Clemson got, got caught on it and it almost got beat and it happens all the time. And the, the, the elite teams are good enough to win despite that. But the other thing is the reason that a team will come in and play man free when they haven't done that all year against you is because they don't respect your wide receivers and quarter quarterbacks. Even if they do respect your wide receivers, they they're going, yeah, your quarterbacks can't get the ball to them. So why should we, why should we do anything more? We think maybe you'll hit a play or two, but that's not going to be enough to beat us. And we're going to take away the run. That's what they did. And I think Dillingham and Norvell and the rest of the staff are going to have to anticipate that basically the rest of the year, you're going to see some derivation of that from whoever you play against. It's just who you are because you don't have players on the outside that really have proven that they can beat man coverage, that they are playmakers, that they can cause defenses problems. Well, then why should I be afraid of that? I'm going to make you beat me with what I don't think you can do. And besides that problem on the outside of receivers not getting open, not getting space, not creating uh, space, the quarterbacks haven't been good enough to hit him. So why would I why would I focus on that? I'm going to take away the thing that the one thing that you might be able to do, and that's run it, which, of course, then makes it even harder to manufacture a running game, given the offensive line, because teams are focusing on that. And that's the thing that you would like to do to <laughs> to, to amend for your weaknesses on the outside and at quarterback, and of course, since they already know this, it becomes, you know, one of those, well, I know that, you know, you know, that I know that, you know, kind of situations, you know, it's a princess bride situation where, you know, you're trying to now scheme up stuff and guess to basically trick them to try to get some big plays. And so, you know, Florida State's in a position right now where they've got multiple force multipliers making them worse on offense. They're bad at offensive line when they don't have Robert Scott and Maurice Smith on the field. They're subpar at quarterback, and they're not winning one-on-ones at wide receiver. At which point you say, is there any, like, can you tell me exactly what it is you do here? Like, what, what, it, what can you do? And so this is where Dillingham is right, that they have to find ways to scheme rub routes and other specific man beaters to generate big plays. Now, every play in their offense, every every passing play that they run, every concept has man beaters built in 
where, you know, if it's man coverage, this is where you're supposed to go. And this, this is how you run it as a receiver against man coverage. But those are going to depend on the wide receiver actually being able to beat man coverage. And the problem is they're not, they're not beating it. So then you have to scheme up other stuff. You have to scheme up, you know, wheel routes, you know, where you, you know, you've got switch concepts and you've got rub routes and all, all sorts of different things to try to, to try to create space when your personnel can't. And that's really what Dillingham meant that they, they needed to do. And they didn't really have prep for this game as much because they didn't expect it, but they're going to need to have that in every game plan from here on. Now, defensively, I'm going to do this a little bit shorter, but defensively brought to you by Shenandoah Newsma of Keller Williams Realty in Ch- Chapel Hill, North Carolina. You can find her at shenrealestate.com and she will make sure that uh, you do more than just play defense on the uh, real estate front. She she thinks the best defense is, the, is a good offense and she's going to make sure you get the best bang for buck, whether you're buying or selling. So if you're in the, in the research triangle, give her a holler, let her know you heard about her from the Unconquered podcast. Defensively, on a play-for-play basis, I was watching it. They weren't actually bad. And I think you can see real progress on the defense. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I noticed is that there's still plays where I'm going, you know, the technique here is better than it's been. And in some cases, the personnel is, is, is okay, right? The technique is there, and then it's not all of a sudden, and that's the problem. But you can see that they're actually getting taught the right things on defense. I, I think that's evident. But I also, I also think, and again, this was something that Fuller's comments made pretty clear, they're not getting good enough competition from the offense in practice. They don't know what they can and can't do. And this got back to my critique in the postgame of this coaching staff needs to recognize they're asking guys to do some stuff that they can't do. And Fuller basically said, look, we, didn't, we, we haven't known that these guys can't do some of the things we're asking them to do until we get into games because they're winning those, those things in practice. And then you think about it and you go, yeah, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> If, you know, everybody you're playing can can cover your wide receivers in one-on-one, if Jacksonville State can do it, then yeah, it makes sense that Travis Jay and Jarvis Brownlee and the rest are having their way with the wide receivers in practice. Of course, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then you get into games against teams like Wake Forest who have two guys that are legit NFL prospects at wide receiver, and you go, okay, so maybe he can't do that as much as I thought he could based on what I'm seeing in practice. And then you have to adjust. And now they're going to have to figure out what, what is it that we can do based on our personnel? And do we need to replace some personnel? But I mean, basically, they're getting the opposite of Dynasty era FSU. And in Dynasty era FSU, the competition during the week was harder than the competition on Saturdays. All but maybe the Miami and Florida games, essentially. So guys got better every day because they, were, they had to be getting better or they'd be getting killed by the guy across from them. Now, in practice, the best players at Florida State feel like they can coast on their talent and some of them have been and then they get into games and because they're not having to refine their technique and play at that level every day it's falling apart so again that means your defensive staff is learning your roster and its capability on the fly in games and you're also having to persuade them that you've got to actually practice harder despite the fact that you're not getting the same level of resistance in practice yippee ki And then beyond that, you have the fragile team psyche issue. And I I got these numbers from Steve Pointer from Unconquered Talk and uh, Simplified Football, the collaborative bit with me. Uh, He noted that Wake Forest, in 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 the situation after the five significant turnovers or after one of the bad calls that basically took away a defensive stop, so the 
the roughing the punter, which should have been running into, and then the the uh, the third down stop that uh, became a late hit out of bounds where it wasn't actually a hit out of bounds. Florida State gave up 6.1 yards per carry, 18 carries for 109 yards and a touchdown. So 6.1 yards per carry on the drives after those five significant turnovers or after one of the bad calls. And they gave up four for six passing for 13.5 yards per per, uh, per attempt and two touchdowns for a 290.1 passer rate. <laughs> Not so good. And that led to a 7.9 yards per play overall average and 24 points. So in those situations, immediately after a turnover, so sudden change, and after one of the bad calls that, that took away a stop, they gave up 7.9 yards per play and 24 points. In all other situations, and all of this is pre-garbage time numbers, both both uh, both of the sets of data that I'm, I'm quoting here, pre-garbage time, all other situations, they gave up 2.9 yards per rush, 7.1 yards per, uh, per pass attempt with an interception for a 123.8 rating, which is actually pretty good. And they gave up basically... In that, in all of that time frame, 54 plays for 4.9 yards per play and 11 points. So just under eight yards per play after sudden change, just under five yards per play every other situation. Look, if you give up under five yards per play, you're playing good defense. And so for 54 plays on all those other situations, they played good defense. But you can see the fragility of this team where Oh man, here we go. And then they get beat. The focus just is not consistent enough. And that's something that can be fixed. It can be, it can be helped. But again, you've got to have some success to start getting some momentum to, to keep that from happening. But this tells me that defensively, they're, they're closer than it looks. Stop the big plays and the self-destruction and figure out how to handle psychologically the sudden change situations. And you're actually a quality defense. I mean, they're doing a pretty good job of, of limiting success, offensive success. They're just giving up too many big plays. I mean, that's one of those, like, you know, aside from the, aside from the, uh, the shooting, you know, Mrs. Lincoln, aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, you know, how was the play? You know, yes, I know there's a, an aspect of that, but still it's worth noting. Okay, I'm going to do a final question and answer. Some things came in uh, via Patreon, social media, some other things uh, that I should address. Uh, and I can do that, you know, it's pertaining to the stuff that we're talking about in this episode. So I'm going to close with that. This segment brought to you by Garage Makeovers, the best garage remodeling company in South Florida. Information in the show notes if you want your garage to be the envy of your neighbors in Broward County and Palm Beach County. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast. So first question. Um... Given how much Brady Scott struggled and the fact that he really isn't suited to be a tackle as much as a guard, which is part of why he struggled, why did we see Brady Scott run out there to replace Robert Scott and not, say, Lloyd Willis, who is a second-year offensive tackle who, you know, has potential to grow into an NFL-type player? I mean, he's got really, really good overall potential. Why did we see Brady Scott and not Lloyd Willis? I think the answer to that is is pretty simple. This staff is committed to development and long-term rather than immediate short-term. And I'm not sure Willis right now would be a whole lot better than Scott. His upside, his ceiling is going to be better. 
But even if he was just a tick better than Scott right now, I'm not sure it'd be worth playing him until you're sure that he's at a point where it's not going to cost him in the future. And this all comes back to something that is is hard to hard to explain or hard to really fully understand unless you've seen it up close. And that's that you can you can actually ruin a young guy, particularly on the offensive line to some degree at quarterback, but you can ruin a young guy by playing him too early. Especially again on the offensive line when you're playing on the line of scrimmage, you're having to block a grown man. A guy who was not in high school last year or the year before. And you're coming in and you're having to do that and you've you have to be developed to get to the level that you can that 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 you can block that. You can handle that business and not just that you can handle that business, but to do that and not get hurt. One of the things that actually happens a lot to young players that play too early on the offensive line is the rate of injury is really high. I mean, on the current roster, one of the guys that would, I think, be on the field right now, other if it weren't for injury, is Thomas Schrader. He played as a true freshman last year, got pushed into duty because he had to be out there a few plays, and he got hurt. And now that has impacted his development because he didn't get the same development in the offseason that he would have had he not gotten hurt. And then he's missing a part of this season, which is a season he probably would have played after having gotten that development. And you hope that if he does play at the end of this year, that he doesn't get hurt again and then cost him another year of development. So that's that you just have to do everything you can. If you want to develop these players on the offensive line, ideally, you don't play before your third year. Very few guys. You have to be an absolute freak to play on the offensive line before your third year and be a quality player. And you have to be a really good, a really good physical specimen to do it that early and not get hurt. Maurice Smith right now, he played last year as a redshirt freshman and now he's dinged up. You want these guys to get time to, to develop and they're trying right now to save and develop as much as they can some of the youngest guys on this roster. Rod Orr, another offensive tackle who's a legit tackle prospect. You don't want to play Rod Orr. You don't want to play Lloyd Willis right now. Because you don't want to ruin those guys. You want, to, you want those guys to be able to come in next year and be able to compete and maybe give you something extra on the uh, at the offensive tackle position. And you go down through Florida State history, recent history. Cole Minshew played early, got hurt. Landon Dickerson played early, got hurt. Bavion Johnson played some early, got hurt. Jawan Williams played early, got hurt. Andrew Baselli played early, got hurt, and then other things came into play. You look at how many how many of these guys that Florida State had that were good recruits, that were that were quality offensive line bodies that just didn't pan out on the offensive line. And a lot of those guys is because they got hurt early. For many of those guys, it's because they had to play too early. And then you end up not developing and you end up not, you end up in the same position the next year because then you have to play the new guy early and then he gets hurt. And then the next class you're in the same. So you got to stop the bleeding. And and sometimes that means you, you take a little bit more in the present in order to, you take some, some losses in the present in order to protect the future. And they're doing that right now. Some of the things that they're doing right now, they're actually coaching understanding that, you know, we might be a little bit better. I mean, like we might have a 5% better chance of winning if we put this guy out there than that guy, but that would be 5% chance better, uh, 5% better chance of winning this game in this year, as opposed to developing this guy where he might give us a 15% chance better 
a 15% better chance of winning next year. So I think that's a big part of this right now. They're trying to develop guys and focusing on that rather than forcing guys into play before they're really ready. And I encourage that, especially in a year where you're probably not going to make a bowl. You better be building for the future because if you have another year like this, it's not a guarantee that you'll be, that you'll be back. So you'd better be making sure that you're, that you're focusing on development. Second question was as a former player and coach would love to hear your insight on situational football, how and when it's practiced, how to expect reasonable improvement moving forward, etc. And this is a bit too big of a question for a short answer, but I'm still going to try to give it a short answer. The main thing is that you have to practice situations in practice. So there are some, some coaches, uh, actually the Bryles, for example, who really don't believe in coaching, setting up artificial situations all the time in practice. So, uh, you know, Kendall Bryles, Art Bryles, their, their approach to uh, coaching offense is basically to get out there and start on first down. And then you just call your place and you just work through and you, you play football essentially. And that, and, and in their view view, that means that you're going to be exposed to enough situations that you just get used to playing in those situations, you know, by playing football in practice. That's one approach. Another approach is more of the Jimbo Fisher, Nick Saban approach, which is, uh, and I probably should invert that because, you know, obviously Fisher is getting more from Saban than vice versa. But, um, but you know, the Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher approach, which is to set up practice as basically a series of situations, situation after situation after situation. So, you know, you set up and here's the ball and we're in Pascal and it, all right, it's third and six, third and six, you got two minutes. And now you're, you're, you know, you run two minute drill this way and you start on third and six, or you, uh, you know, you work third down over and over again in third down period, you work tight zone goal line in each of their own periods and you focus on situation after situation. And then you make sure you build in some sudden change to each practice where you're going through drills here and then the whistle blows. And then all of a sudden offense and defense have to get on the field and it's ones versus ones. And it was just a turnover. And now you've got offense has to score. Defense has to hold them out. And you focus on replicating situation after situation so that your team is basically in the mode so that anytime it's third down, they immediately are thinking third down drill. Anytime they get into the goal line situation, they're thinking goal line. And that, you know, that, that was a Bowden staple as well. I mean, we did goal line probably more than anybody in the, in, in the country, but goal line tight zone coming out of the, coming out, out of the end zone, you're, you're, you know, all of your scrimmages, all of your, your different things are divided out so that you're focusing not so much on the, you know, actual drives and all of this as much, but you're focusing much more in situational football. And that's, that's the other way to approach it. I fall more in line with the second approach with the, with the Saban Fisher approach, uh, because I think that that just gets your players into a certain mindset about situations to think about situations and critical uh, concepts rather than just playing. And I think you need to have that, but that I think is how you, how you best approach it. But like I said, there's a couple different schools of thought on that. And, um, and I, I have my, my own preference on that. So final question, looking at it objectively, do you believe that there is much hope that they are close enough to figuring it out or mature enough to keep growing that they might finish with a few respectable results? So my answer to this is 
that I think if we're looking at this year, if we're looking for respectable results this year, I don't think that's especially likely. Now, if you mean like, could they pull a couple upsets? Could they, you know, manage to do more than win, you know, two, three games this year? I think it's possible. But again, the hope of figuring it out and getting mature enough, I think it boils down to, can you get Robert Scott and Maurice Smith back up front and stay healthy enough on the offensive line to be even remotely competitive on that side of the ball? And if you can't, then I don't think there's a whole lot of hope to finish with a lot of with with respectable results. And otherwise, I, I don't think there's a lot of optimism to, to be had about what they're going to be able to do game in, game out in this year. But if you're going to have any hope, it really has to revolve around getting Scott and Smith back on the offensive line so that they can at least compete at that point. And then you got a shot, you know, then, you know, it's not impossible that they could beat a Miami team late in the year. You know, it's not impossible, but they, but they're not beating them with, with the offensive line that they trotted out there this last week. They're going to get, they're gonna, they'll, they'll get blown out with that group. There's still some things that they can do to, to improve. And, and defensively, there's still, a, there's still a lot of room for growth. And I think there has been growth, but they've, they've, they've got to keep the buy-in and keep chopping wood to be able to get there. Now, I do think there's significant hope for next year. I think there's enough talent, young talent on the roster. And I think if they can hold this next recruiting class together, that they can build and be a lot better next year. And I, I think, uh, you know, the opener is not friendly, but you survive psychologically that opener and physically that opener, and you can be a lot better next year than you were this year. So I think there's a lot of positives in terms of the technique that I'm seeing on a lot of things. There's been improvement. It's just not been enough to show results yet. And that's where you have to focus on the process, on the process. You have to double down on the process and you have to reinforce this with consistency. And this is where, you know, making changes right now is probably not the right solution because part of the problem has been all the changes that these players have been through year after year after year, even in season at times. So you've got to find some consistency so that they're used to what they're being asked to do and they can do it well and do it without thinking. And they're not there yet. And it's going to take a little while. The Unconquered Podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, ShenRealEstate.com in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Garage Makeovers of Palm Beach in Broward County, and the Unconquered Podcast shop at UnconqueredPodcast.com, which features stickers, magnets, and other seminal gear. Thanks also to those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast from supporters. I'm especially grateful to those above the dynasty level, that is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Jonathan Kennedy, Lee Caswell, Travis Smith, Tyler Kashishki, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, post us on social media, and tell a friend. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. I made this.